Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? This is uh, Uncle Francis's wine cellar. It's a podcast where we break down the films of Uncle Francis Ford Coppola cut by cut. And this is the Cage Club Podcast Network. That's that's my Killer Kowalski impression for today's episode. Killer Kowalski, the famous wrestler, or well, isn't that the name? Isn't what's his name in this? Killer Kilgannon. But it doesn't matter. All right. Hey, it's been a long day. I was up at six. I just recorded a two and a half hour podcast about Van Helsing. I mean, uh, Bram Stoker. Yeah, I don't know. Stealing our thunder a little bit there. It's it's the holiday season. It is. It is officially the holiday season. We are in November, but let me get the podcast started officially, then we can talk all about it. Bona said, I have a seat, have a glass, and welcome to Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. I'm Brian Rodriguez, but where's Michael? We're not starting the podcast without Michael. And I'm Mike Manzi. Now we can start the podcast, because I'm here. <laughs> Keep your friends close and your fellow podcasters closer, guys. Remember to yes. hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, leave us a positive review. Leave us a positive rating. You can also help us out by telling a friend about the wine cellar. Even though it's a secret, shh, we're letting you in on it. We're letting your friends in on it. We're letting your family in to the cellar. So please, please, please join us. And join us today yes. in, in talking the rain people. Yes, the rain People from 1969. This huh. is an old one. This is a early Coppola film, so can't wait to talk about it. I do have to introduce the Coppola wine of the day. I had this one chilling. Mm, nice one. Looks sweating cool. a little bit. Coppola, Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Chardonnay 2019. I'm not usually a Chardonnay guy, but... Uh-huh. Well, which one is it? Is it is it chilling or sweaty? I don't understand. So it was cold, but I had it out, so it's just like the bottle outside is sweating. But it's still cold. Got it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Got it, got it, got it. It's been unseasonably warm the last couple of days oh. in the New York, the New York metro, huh? Yeah, tell me about it. It was like up to 75, 80 today outside my house. Oh my gosh. Yesterday was so humid. I couldn't believe it. This is a podcast, by the way, if you're listening, where we really pull back the veil, the behind the scenes. We're very, it's much, I consider this the casual cast for most of it, where I just, not that I'm not trying as hard. I'm just, I'm trying to have as much fun as possible. These movies talk about themselves essentially because they're usually great. <laughs> and if they're not, they're interesting at least. So we don't have to be mm-hmm. wacky or loony. We could just talk about the films. And of course, we're talking about the weather today, Mike. This is the rain people after all. It's, right. it's somewhat a weather movie, yeah. I suppose. I, I remember, um, I forgot. I forgot what friends I was discussing this with, but this was during like the real. <laughs> was it Chandler? Was it Joey? No, not those kind of friends. <laughs> oh. No, I, it might have been my friend Dan Ferrara, who you know you've had on your show. Yeah. And him and his wife were like, oh, if we were to start a podcast, we, we think we would start like a natural disasters podcast, right? Like, Ooh. which I think is kind of cool, right? 
Do you think does the Poseidon Adventure qualify? Is it a natural disaster that causes? It's a it's a tight it's a tidal wave, right? It's yeah, a giant I guess wave. So I, I, so I, I had not, would you come on my show, the Poseidon Adventure Adventure, which we just <laughs> talk about that once a month? <laughs> I mean, that'd be fun. It is it is an interesting movie with a lot of characters, a lot of good actors. Yeah. So. Of course, yeah. I would come on your show, Mike. I come on third times a charm for marsupial movies. I'll come on any True. of your shows. True. This is a fruity wine, huh? I mean, you tell me. I still haven't. I still haven't broken my streak and opened a bottle yet. I, I don't want. I've been editing these episodes, and I keep hearing you say, "Oh, I don't want to break my streak. Break your streak. You have to break your streak." But let's do it when we could share a bottle of wine together. We're still yes. over, over Zoom, but that's fair. We can uncork together or twist off like this one together so yeah salute to you i have my coffee here um <laughs> and it, it would be cool someday to raise a glass with some of our listeners as well so i look forward to possibly doing that in person like a live show sometime that would be cool Ooh, uncle francis's wine dinner right? well maybe we could do it at a winery oh now you're speaking, uh... my, language. <laughs> now you're speaking my language so, that, uh, unless they get mad that we're promoting other people's wine at that winery. So, Francis, the Coppola family, invite us out to California. <laughs> mm, I was up in Ukiah where the Coppola, near where that is, and it's too far. It's too far. No, I won't want to go back there. No offense to that. <laughs> but no, like, you know, they'll we, fly <laughs> us there. They'll fly us on, on the Coppola jet, Coppola oh, Air. That's a different, that's a different story. <laughs> then, I'm, then I'm back on. I'm on board there. But no, you know, we go to a winery. We could promote their wine as well. Um, as long as the you know proprietor wants to talk about the movie with us, I'd be cool with that. Planning, planning, planning. This is why this is the casual podcast. We talk about the things that we want to do. We talk about our dreams. And Francis definitely was really starting to form his dream when he uh, wrote and directed The Rain People. So many cool wow, facts about good this se- Good segue, bruv. Thank good you, thank segue. You. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I found this really cool article before we get into the nitty-gritty of the film. It just came out today as we record, so probably a week or two before the episode comes out. It's on Collider. Have you ever read stuff from Collider? They're pretty good. Yeah, from time to time. Uh, The writer is Reed Goldberg, and the article is called How the Failure of Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope Birthed the Godfather. And I'm not going to spoil it, but it's a great article that like sort of ties how ambitious Francis was and his partners, one that we'll talk yeah. about today, because I found a really cool fact, which I already told you off air, but pretend I'm telling you again. But the fact that like he was making these movies, including The Rain People, he was doing it out of his own pocket, and he was so far in debt, essentially. And this goes for, I'll just spoil it, this goes for George Lucas as well, one of his partners. Yeah, yeah. THX 1138, you know, Zoetrope was a partner on that, and tanked mercifully as well so yeah and they were pretty much forced not that these weren't great movies but they were forced to go back into the studio system and that's why a big reason why francis agreed to the godfather that's a big reason why lucas produces star wars the way he does in american graffiti right so like even though those early films a lot we'll talk about on this podcast didn't do well financially they did lead to future financial success and yeah, film success yeah. as well. Yeah, opportunity, opportunity. Like this movie, The Rain People, falls in 
to something also like not just THX to me, but like even even American Graffiti, even though that's successful, you hear these guys early on and even now talk about how they always just wanted to make small personal films. And I feel like the Rain People, American Graffiti, and to an extent, like for Spielberg, it's going to sound strange, but Duel, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is his sort of like proto Jaws. And I think it's filled with all the themes he's going to be exploring for the next decade or so. Like those are the movies that like we're dealing with in in this sort of around this time period again for the next decade or so with these directors and stuff so like it's very cool to see him at this stage this young doing these personal projects and trying to stay afloat i can't wait till one from the heart because that is the last sort of gasp i think for zoetrope uh, and it's filmed entirely like on that lot and so so much more to talk about during that episode yeah, I've read so many films being called the film that saved American Zoetrope and also many films that were the film that killed it. And it still technically exists today. They do some of Sofia Coppola's films, right? I think they're producing Megalopolis in some form, right? But when The Rain People comes out, though, that's when it's like truly putting out its vision, which is like artist-based independent films specifically ones that are focused on character and filming rather than again trying to make money but it is a business as we learn yeah 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 this movie this movie it's interesting you say that because like i haven't seen this movie since like the early 2000s but when i first went to college and started studying film like i remember i tracked this down and watched it often because we'll get into it like i really enjoy aspects of it if i don't like the whole thing as much anymore but like it feels like not a student film but an early first film you know it feels like someone who just like was like screw it let's let's hit the road pick up the camera and shoot this movie while we drive up and down the coast or something and like it has that real energy sort of like that french new wave spirit almost to it like that yeah just get out of the studio and get out into the world and shoot that movie the change and like anyone who's taken a film class of the 20th century has learned about this movement right what is it called like when we get the graduate and easy rider and and films like this that eventually um yeah what do they call it the uh, american new wave i think yeah i think i think new wave cinema whatever (laughs) yeah it's taken from the french new wave but i think it is the american new wave or something like that yeah where we go from these like on soundstage studio projects to more films like this and they're giving more young directors a chance and we're breaking the studio system and eventually we go to the blockbuster era and stuff like that but this is such an awesome era for like for me personally not that i was alive in it but i love the films of this era because it was occasionally like we had a peak of these in the 90s we had a peak of these a couple years ago where like independent films become like the top grossing film not even grossing but like what hollywood is pushing and then it's like we vacillate between like blockbuster dark independent films oh oh yeah yeah blockbuster this is (laughs) (laughs) this is this is like what you might consider nowadays like the a24 Mm -hmm, style mm -hmm. right like the same year as the same year as rain people you get easy rider uh right so i mean that's the same idea it's like you know they they're off the soundstage and out into the country shooting the movie and that's like part of the the point and the theme of it all you know yeah it's terrific there is also a certain 
irony to the fact that while they were trying to do this, they inadvertently create the blockbuster system. Yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's insane. Because even films like like Bonnie and Clyde feel more yeah more like this than they do the old fashioned way of doing things like a western or something you know so it's a fascinating era Coppola's a huge part of it and if you read about like especially Godfather stuff that's the film I know most about people even though this movie wasn't popular it didn't do particularly well at the time people in studios knew it for better or worse it got good reviews among the independent film crowd. They knew Francis hey. could do things. They also knew that Francis could bankrupt potentially a film. So that's kind of well, where we well, are. When he hasn't starts. What has he tanked at this point? I mean, we know the the Finnegan's Rainbow. We haven't watched that, but like, I don't know the story behind any of that. Um, he did. You're a big boy now, which I don't. You know, I've seen once, but it seems like competent it doesn't seem like a travesty and then there's this and then the godfather if i'm not mistaken but uh, you know he's written some successful stuff as well so i'm wondering why he has that reputation at this point it's a good question mike from what i'm reading i think it's about the studio the fact that he's rebelling against the major studios he's using a lot of his own money he's fundraising and he's not necessarily paying his investors back there right but that's not his fault you know yeah if a movie doesn't make the money how (laughs) yeah but it's a business too you have to take acceptable losses and things of that nature and invest in the next picture and we'll make our money back and you know it's all it's all a hustle yeah right and it's not like a guarantee you make a movie you're going to make money it's not even guarantee you start making a movie you're going to finish it and ultimately, though, I believe this film is a success because of where it leads in his career. But I don't know. I, the studio system at the time, they just were not very fond of him doing things his way. I think that's, that's the best way to put it. I think they okay, would okay. love to use him doing things their way. But I think they thought he was too, he wanted too much control of his own films but that's like commonplace now so it's weird for me to say oh my god a director wants control (laughs) it's just so strange to think that like you know scorsese is doesn't really have any any interference while he's doing like mean streets or anything i don't know the studio involvement beyond any of that i don't know the story there but it's just strange that francis is right bumping so many heads that he wants to sort of change the studio from the inside out so badly um, he's almost willing to like sabotage uh, his career in a sense to do it, um, and yet is always able to maintain his career and actually like for a long time have an incredibly successful, prolific career. I don't know. It's just strange because the themes in this movie are heavy even for today. You know, they drop an A bomb, they drop the abortion in this movie, and for 1969 in a Warner Brothers film, that had to have been gotten a lot of executives kind of nervous you know uh, and that maybe that's part of the reason they didn't like francis is because like times were changing they were not and here's a guy who's of the times who's like coming out coming not coming for their throats but coming for their job for sure so it's the first time i saw the rain people and i was surprised how modern the film felt to me like sure you know it, it looked dated but there's themes of feminism and you're right there's talk of abortion and just like um a woman's ownership over you know her married life 
and on, yeah. on the road and that grittiness, right? Like I was like, oh, I've seen this film in the 90s. I've seen this film, you know, even today. And it's like Coppola was making this in 69. It was so refreshing to me to watch this movie. Did I like everything about it? No. But I was pleasantly surprised. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a lot of difficult stuff to watch in this movie. And I think ultimately that's why I had a harder time re-watching it now. You know, I haven't seen it in like at least 10 years. But like things just hit a lot harder maybe and it's just you know it's not that it's bad it's just that it gets difficult to face what he's showing you sometimes you know and so for that fact like it comes across depressing and kind of like i don't want to see it again if i don't have to but definitely you know worth checking out once for sure just to see you know stylistically uh story-wise structure-wise i think it's doing a lot of stuff ahead of its time possibly i love sad independent films i love independent films. <laughs> right right up your alley <laughs> no exactly i love independent films with ambiguous endings i feel like they don't make them anymore i feel like people kind of shit on them these days but like I don't like this man. I don't want anyone to quote me, but you and I have discussed, you know, Woody Allen films before, and some of them are silly, and some of them are, you know, bananas, and again, this is not endorsing... That's the, that's the title of one of them. <laughs> that is true. Uh, and this is not endorsing Woody Allen as a person. I'm just using an example. But a lot of them, like some of his more darker, deeper ones, remind me of this in a sense where they're darker you know and yeah like an like another woman that's yeah, uh yeah i was, was very surprising when i watched that yeah or even something like uh like crimes and misdemeanors like you're not supposed to feel good at the end of it right <laughs> yeah this yeah is a film that i don't think you're supposed to feel good <laughs> at the end of <laughs> match point you know oh, yeah. <laughs> like, i there's one there's one called cassandra's dream which i don't think anybody's seen but Colin Farrell and Ewan McGregor play brothers. Their performances are insane. So, I don't. Again, we're not promoting Winnie Allen or nothing, but like as one, that's one that I don't think many people know about. I was so drawn to these films for a while. Like the writer in me was really drawn to them. I get why they don't make money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right, right. People want to feel good usually when they see a movie. You're not gonna probably feel good after the rain, people. Unless, you, again, you're a lover of this genre. So, like I mentioned, first time I saw this film, Coppola writes and directs it. Um, Mike, you lent me the DVD copy. You can rent it places yeah. here or there. You can track it down. I thought this one might be on uh, HBO Max. It wasn't because they technically have the Warner Vault. It might have been on at some point there. I know when HBO Max debuted, they tried to you know, release the entire Warner Vault, and then they, like, pulled back from it after a while. Oh, okay. Um, and then it could also be something that, like, TMC, uh, Turner Classic Movie, sorry, TMC, TCM, has yeah. in yeah. their service, because, again, they're, like, a Warner company as well. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, I might have actually, they, I might have actually seen it on Turner Classics mm -hmm. at some point over the, over the years. It feels very much like something they've aired. Right, and like where they'll have like a celebrity like introduce it. Not a celebrity, but like their kind of celebrity, you know, like before the Godfather, the rain people is what Coppola was known for, you know, they do like exactly. 
I love those. I love those, though. But uh, what you lent me, Mike, was your archive collection of this. And I, I don't know if you guys have ever had archive collection uh, DVD releases. They're very bare bones, but they're usually yeah, yeah. copies of, like, the theatrical print. So this is, like, the, uh, the, what is it, whatever. I don't know what millimeter this was shot in. You probably know more this than was. Me. This looks like just shot in four by three just a standard square format you know uh yeah and these are these are like print to order so like it's not like amazon has them in stock like you order it they print it and they ship it to you it's like that kind of situation so it's coming right from studio yeah yeah there's no menu there's no behind the scenes featurette it's just basically you know if we were around 30 40 well we were but you know if we were around 30 40 50 years ago as our age now, we would go to a video store and get a print of this, you know what I mean? Maybe we'd go to our local, you know, theater that ran these prints and watch it on an independent film night or something along those lines, right? Like, that's right. the copy you're getting. This isn't, you know, this is a podcast where we go into the films cut by cut. From what I understand or have researched, there is no other cut of the rain people that's widely okay. available. So this will likely be a one and done for us unless, you know, they digitally remaster and add scenes. I highly doubt that. The only way it's going to happen is <laughs> Megalopolis is such a huge hit and it just like changes everyone's perception of Coppola. And, and young people are like, who's this guy? Oh, where, where were all his films? And, you know, they re-release everything or something. I wish. But um, I think this is what we're going to get here. So like I said, watch it on DVD. First time for me. Borrowed your DVD, Mike. How did you watch The Rain People? So for some reason, I also had a VHS copy of this. So I, you know, lent lent you the DVD and watched my VHS copy. And yeah, you know, since it, it wasn't shot in letterbox or anything, like it was perfectly fine. You know, I didn't have to worry about any kind of like pan and scan or screen stretching or anything like that. And uh, yeah, print was good. Looked perfectly fine to me. Played all the way through. And uh, holds up just as well, I think, as a DVD does. <laughs> Interesting, Mike, because you keep mentioning um, the format, and I just looked at the back, and this one's widescreen. Oh, no. Is it really? Okay. Well, mine was definitely not. You know, mine was chopped then. So I don't feel like I lost anything in translation. No, no. Did I, you, did, I couldn't even did remember you notice? that. Did you notice? No, I didn't notice. That's why. Yeah. I just okay. noticed it, it, it was definitely shot on film and not the highest quality film like that's what i noticed yeah. oh yeah yeah it's probably like um what do they used to shoot on 13 millimeter a lot and like sometimes tarantino still does i think he shot death proof on that or something i don't know yeah it definitely felt like 13 millimeter uh now that you bring it up 16 by 9 widescreen format on this dvd yeah yeah super 16 maybe even uh is what they used to, i think that's what they shot American Graffiti in, so I don't oh, know, yeah, but that you're would, right. That would make sense. Anyway, I don't know all that much about film stock or anything, but just a few tidbits here and there that happen to come out right now. Not that kind of podcast. We drink wine and we talk about the couple of movies we watch, so don't worry. Uh, but this People is... People are going to be like, there's there's no 13 millimeters, and what the fuck he's saying? It's like, <laughs> please, please, if you feel that way, that we've messed something up, if you know facts about this movie, if you out there, listeners, seller dwellers, if you know anything that we don't know, or if we make any mistake, hit us up on social media. Instagram, Uncle Francis Wine Cellar. I am at O-H 
M-Y Rodriguez. Oh, my Rodriguez on Twitter. Mike, you're at the Mikester on yes, everything pretty yes, much. Yes, yes, yes. Hit us up. We want to hear from you. So it's either Super 8, 16, or 65, and then 70, and then IMAX. So there's no 13. Oh, it was shot on IMAX. You're right. I remember now. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Nolan only shoots on Super 8. That's what I'm thinking. 16 millimeter was shot on. I just looked it up. All right, cool. Cool, cool, cool. So you said you'd seen it before. You said, uh, what, early 2000s you watched it for the first time? Yeah, yeah. I was in college around like, oh, four or so, something like that, maybe. And uh, I was just, you know, got. I was in the mode already in that mode when I entered uh, college where it's like, uh, I'm a completionist. I got to see everything. So whether it was like a director or a film series is like, is there any gaps in the Alien series I haven't seen or the Freddy series or any of that? Like, I got to make sure I got all that, like, loose ends tied up, see everything I'm missing and forgot. You know, it's like, you know, in your 20s, you got nothing but time to just sit around and, like, watch tons of movies. So that was around the time where I was like, Coppola, okay, I fell in love. Of course, I, I knew The Godfather, but I fucking fell in love with Apocalypse Now. Like, I used to watch that over and over and over again when I was studying film. I was like, I got to see every Coppola film I can get my hands on. And so this was one of them, you know. Um, this is when I acquired this, these copies, and that's when I first saw the movie. I love that. I don't know if this is true for everybody, but obviously it's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for, I think, a lot of people who seek these type of podcasts out. Like, you see some films that you really enjoy. They're usually, like, more modern films. And then you do kind of a deep dive or you're exposed to something something else, right? And then you're, like, there's that, like, universal feeling that of, like, the human story, as, like, corny as this sounds, when you see older stuff that mirror, like, what you're still feeling today or what you still enjoy about film today. You're, like, holy shit, oh, yeah. this isn't a new idea. Like, this has been... Oh, yeah, permeating forever, and, and I love that about this film. <laughs> Brian, if I could tell you, I mean, go listen to half the episodes of The Monsters That Made Us, and I am constantly surprised and let Dan know how surprised I am by being like, I can't believe how modern this feels. Like, I didn't know they were doing this in the 30s. Like, I didn't understand that they had that sensibility and the language to interpret that back then at the beginning of sound motion picture. Like, that's so awesome i'm glad i love doing that i love that's the magic of film right like to transport you to a certain time and place and if it's done right like it's the magic of it like you experience it like the way the way it actually was through through that through that director writers actors lens but like it's like time travel it's awesome and the most rewarding thing about this time travel and maybe it's the chardonnay talking or just like the universal human <laughs> truths that just continue no matter what generation you're in. They're in a different lens. They're in maybe different costumes. They're maybe talking about slightly different things. But but just yeah. uh, themes of, of freedom and, and independence and agency, right? Like we get that here that oh, we still see yeah. in film today. And yeah, I just love Dude, it. I just yeah. love when I watch a film like this for the first time and I'm like, crap. They got it then. They got it now. Like we... <laughs> I think something that we're all guilty of, two things, right? We always, as humans, underestimate the youth, but we also underestimate the people who came before us, right? We assume that these are new ideas that we're coming up with all the time. And yeah. In reality, 
they're never new ideas. We're just keep, we keep living the same lives over and over again. So I don't know. It's it's just crazy. And a film like The Rain People brings me back to that notion. Yeah. Well, this one when I was watching it, I guess I felt uncomfortable in a good way because of all the stuff we're talking about. Like it would be one thing if it was just flash, but it's got it's got subtext. Like there's context, subtext. Like it's it's about social mores. Like the themes are strong and sort of everlast. Like it it talks about Brian. It addresses concussions and football and right. brain injury. CTE before CTE. Insane. Yeah. Yeah, that Coppola had all this stuff on his head. It's like he's so forward thinking about trying to reach the general public. And he's like, you know, the newspaper is one thing, but if someone sees a movie, that can travel the world. And like, it's not just something they read one day and discard. It's like it's there forever. So like someone watching, like a teenager watching this today will probably be blown away and be like, I can't believe it. Like nothing's changed. <laughs> right. Like when I think of movies of the past, I think of films like pride of the Yankees, right. Which is like a mm. good, great movie, but right. sort of, <laughs> sort of like a puff piece, right. Sports movies like that are usually are not highlighting CTE. Not that this is a sports film. You forget that there were these voices that were really highlighting what's real. Not everything was propaganda. I don't know when they look back at this era. Yeah, people are going to be talking about Marvel films and things like that. But there are certain filmmakers that you and I don't even know yet, probably, that are releasing their Rain Peoples before they release The Godfather that people are going to go back to and be like, holy shit. (laughs) So, uh, again, I'm excited to talk this one. I'm excited to share some of the the things I read, Mm. the deep dive of The Rain People. So, 69... You had seen the film before. You knew this film. I'd known it from lists. Never seen it. First time. I was happy to see that Coppola wrote and directed this one, like I said. Um, He shot this in order as well, for the most part, right? Like, if they could save money here or there, he would cheat a little bit. But he wanted to shoot it in order. And it's exactly like you said, Mike. They sort of just all got in a van. And apparently, according to a lot of uh, press at the time... It was shot in 18 different states. Oh, wow. Yeah, they would just drive around and say, hey, this is a good place to shoot this scene. Boom, they would do it. So they wanted to recreate that journey itself, which I found that so fascinating. You know, it starts out in Long Island. It ends up, God knows where it it, ends up film-wise. But, you know, we get to West Virginia. We get to a bunch of other, you know, interesting places. Oh, Nebraska it ends up. And actually, yeah, did end up in Nebraska. It's super cool in that way. It's super cool, cool to see the country filmed by Coppola. Like, you know, we, we start out in a static shot of suburbia and we end in sort of the untamed middle of the country, if you will. And we see that journey literally as it's shot. So I don't know. I, I found that fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I like movies shot in sequence when you find out that, um, but like very probably economical for this particular story of, you know, a woman on the road or just like a road trip, uh, like it makes a lot of sense if you can do it that way. And it also helps if you're the writer as well. You can make stuff up on the day along the way and think, you know, oh, like this scene's coming up if you're shooting in order and, you know, adding things or whatever. Like, I think that's a real tactical decision. And that's what's like fun and great to be the writer and director. You hit the nail on the head, Mike. 
Um, so he had the whole script written out. Uh, you'll see some sources say that it was sort of improv. It wasn't. I uh, read a couple of interviews with him. Like he had it planned out, but he's like, it's exactly what he said. If he saw inspiration on the road, he'd write that scene in um, based on location. And, and it would you know make sense to him at least. Uh, we get a, a Ferris Bueller style parade in this, right? Like that was actually <laughs> a parade and he had them like walk in. And it's true. According to like the trivia, if you look at that parade scene, you could see people sort of saying like, who the hell is that? Why is like nice. James Khan just like walking in this parade randomly? Um, people, you know, were themselves and they didn't like react to it because he right. was just doing his thing. And, and there's almost like a guerrilla style filmmaking uh, that uh, right. Coppola employed here by going on the road and doing this. And, and I think that's like that's super cool because it's about a woman trying to find her freedom. And the road is important to this. Yeah, yeah. And the sort of docu-style filmmaking adds so much to the personal touch. Like it makes it almost feel at times invasive, like like voyeuristic I don't know. Like even in su- in certain scenes, like it's very almost fetishistic. Is that a word? Like it, it fetishizes a lot of not just her, but I think of the James Con character as well. But like just the way the camera is used, I think in this film is very well. It's very cool, very well done. Like there's a lot of long takes, and they're mostly when she's on the phone. So like you get the phone calls in real time but then there's a lot of coverage when you know she's like getting ready or trying to find a motel or driving around uh there's lots of good montage so overall just really good film language used for certain reasons like to accentuate the moment for for different reasons you know it's not just like flashy like he's actually like this is a long take because I want you to experience this grueling phone call, you know, in real time. So I thought that was very interesting and uh, it was very cool. My preconceived notion was that this film was going to be a little bit uh, exploitative. And it really didn't feel that way. You're right, Mike. Like, you want my personal opinion? I think it was a little too long. I think it could have been a little bit shorter. But yeah, you get why he's lingering on things for a long time and it's exactly for the reason you're saying like to for that visceral feeling of it happening that awkwardness that realisticness in terms of like you know those difficult phone calls yeah. we we have in our own life feel like they last forever they don't feel like movie three second or four seconds so uh you're, you're so right about that you know already alluded to the george lucas connection here basically how the story is told is that Coppola, he's from Michigan, but he does his undergrad at Hofstra on Long Island. The beginning of this film begins in Long Island, so that makes sense, right? A lot of the shots, I believe uh, some of the campus shots were shot at Hofstra. He starts his journey there, but eventually gets into UCLA film school for, like, you know, graduate school. And he's one of the hot shots on campus. And cross town at USC, the hot shot on campus is young filmmaker named... George Lucas. George Lucas, yeah. He actually becomes a teaching instructor under Irving Kirshner, which is, like, incredible. (laughs) Amazing, amazing, right? So they kind of link up around that time. Uh, I think Lucas visits the set of Finian's Rainbow, and, you know, they're all chatting. And they really become friends, though, like close friends on the Rain people because, and I didn't know this, and I'm so excited about this, but 
I believe Coppola invites Lucas to film with him, essentially, hang out, and just shoot a little behind-the-scenes thing. So there is actually, and it's on YouTube, I hope they don't take it off, a George Lucas shot behind-the-scenes featurette of the Rain People that, I, Mike, I think we're going to do as like a mid-month thing because I really want to watch this. Yeah, yeah, this is incredible. Like, I thought I'd seen everything George Lucas has shot, but um, my mind is blown. I mean, I knew he's got credits in this movie. He's like a production, he's like the production assistant, which, you know, means he did everything <laughs> that needed to be done that wasn't, you know, done by like the cameraman or Francis or the actors. But God, like to know that he actually shot a behind the scenes documentary about this movie is just amazing. I can't wait to, to watch it and do that episode. So yeah, Lucas and Francis, after the film, they work together a lot in the, the post-production. That's where they come up with the idea of doing American Zootrope um, together. They got a couple of other partners and, and they go in together. This is produced by American Zootrope, but while Francis was filming, you know, the American Zootrope wasn't really a thing. It's born out of them being in a van, shooting this on the road, and doing things their way. And I think that's so beautiful. This is such a great film for us to cover. Because we did The Offer, but that's not a Coppola film, right? We did The Godfather, his most important film. We did a later film of his in Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think it was important for us to go back here and see sort of like, really, the fires that he's forged in. This is quite literally the film before the film. This is such an important film yeah. in his career. Such an important film in Lucas's career because of that, that bond they filmed. And that, come on, you know, you can't lie to me, Mike. Growing up, that little click of like Lucas and Scorsese and Coppola and Spielberg, the envy of every young filmmaker. Like you want your friends to be that close. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to go to USC and, and you know, walk the walk of Spielberg and et cetera, right? But at some point you realize you got to be, you know, there's enough people trying to be George Lucas. You got to be the one and only you, right? Like there's only one Mike Manzi. So I had to go out and be myself at that point. But yeah, like the envy and the inspiration, I would say. And it's not just those three. Like there's a whole gaggle of those dudes, you know what I mean? Like Robert Zemeckis was down with them. And um, De Palma. I mentioned Scorsese. He's a close friend. De Palma, yeah. It was a whole mafia like uh, Oliver Stone uh, who, who knew the doors, who Raymond's uh, – what's his name? The – the door, uh, Jim Morrison, he went to USC and studied film with those dudes for a minute. So, uh, yeah, just such a fantastic story. You know, that's something that they should tell uh, either theatrically or somehow. I mean, they've done the story of National Lampoons. They could tell that story if you ask. Hey, me. I, hey, I just, Paramount Plus. Listen to us again. Paramount any of Plus. it. Any of that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you watch this movie and I not so much with you're a big boy now is that i think that's what it's called and i've never seen finnegan's rainbow but like you watch this movie and you're like oh this filmmaker knows his shit like he's competent oh he wrote and directed to okay this guy is an auteur then he's like an american auteur and he you could tell like he studied the french and the italian and everybody else that he could get his hands on and he's trying to approach this as not just a movie but cinema because he's actually integrating his themes properly and he's using the film language uh, as well as actual talking language uh to sort of 
contrast and compare what he's trying to talk about. And it's so like, it's all here in this movie. And again, like, it's not that I think it's a bad movie. I just think it, it gets difficult at times. And it just, you have to really be in the mood for this movie. So I promote this movie and I think it's good, but like, it depresses me. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost, he almost gets it too right at times. And it's like, I can't wait for The Godfather because it's going to be a little more sort of verbose <laughs> and fantastical, just just by nature of the mafia, of the of the themes. How about the fact that he's like 2930 and these are the themes he's deciding as a filmmaker to showcase? Again, feminism and you know the malaise of marriage, especially getting married young and, and feeling trapped, like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it because like... Those are the kind of things, I don't know, like, he, he's like, there's a, those are the things he's not seeing, right? It's like the, he, wants to, he wants to make movies about stuff that he's not seeing in the movies, per se. And I mean, maybe these things are coming up more often now in the 60s with this, not just the new wave of the American studio guys and gals, but like the underground studio that has popped up as well, that is also running in tangent with this you know you have guys like Cassavetes running around and you also even have like Robert Downey Sr. doing his his stuff and like Roger Corman and things like that so like this this whole group this generation is really more just you know mindful I think and understands the power of film better and they don't just want to show you no offense to one of my favorite movies like you know, the Poseidon adventure or anything, but they don't just want to show you disaster stuff and like heroes and, and that there's enough of that. Okay. So like, I think that this was a nice conscious choice of Coppola to be like, I'm going to expose people to stuff that they're not used to. Look, film can be art and film can be entertainment. Sometimes like the Godfather, it's both, right? This is definitely more on the art side and art is meant to provoke emotion. It's not necessarily meant to make you feel good about yourself, right? The Poseidon Adventure is entertainment. I love the Poseidon Adventure. You know, I can't believe we talked about it this much on this episode, but I love the Poseidon Adventure. But, like, I love Gardens of the Galaxy, right? There's a time and place for it. This, to me, is a museum film. It's an art film. It doesn't mean it's archaic. It means it's, like, yeah. it's supposed to bring certain emotions out of you. And I think it is successful in that. Coppola considers it yeah. one of the top films he's ever made. So wow, well, I, I mean, you can see the influence of dudes like Godard going on here, and and things of that nature, and like that whole, you know, that that stuff that was happening to Truffaut, and and to to say it's an art film isn't a bash or anything. That is a legitimate classification. Like that is a genre of film. Like that's what some people call it elevated horror you can call it what you want it's a fucking art film to me okay that's why i love like the lighthouse like that is an art film yeah. okay and it's weird and fucked up and scary and hilarious and everything but like you know you can call it what you want but like i'm never i was never really down on that term you know what i'm saying call it an art film and it deserves that respect if if that's what it is it's almost an oxymoron art film, but you know. No, it's not though. Like, isn't art what defines us as humans? Isn't art yeah. what separates us from the animals? Right. Like this is this is amazing. I love art films. Like they have a, they have a purpose. Look, the critics at the time were a little wishy washy on this. A young Roger Ebert loved this film, uh, <laughs> so, so he was like really into it. But now, aggregated eighty three percent. 
by the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 62% by the audience, and I get that. Not everyone wants to feel these emotions. But 3.5 on Letterboxd, which is pretty good, right? You know, the deep, deep, deep critics at the time loved it. This won the top prize at the San Sebastian Film Festival, which is not your, you know, huge-ass film festival, but it's still a very important one in a sense that, like, for especially for, like, independent films and stuff like that. So it wins there. One of two films that he would win top prize at that film festival. But when we cover that other film, I'll tell you what it is at that point. For a later day. He was able to get people who had Hollywood reputations in the film, despite, you know, not being able to pay them a lot. And that's just based on his reputation. This is not a guy coming from nowhere. You already mentioned he's worked with Corman for years. People in Hollywood know him. He's a standout in school so it's not again a rags to riches story by any means at this point right yeah shirley knight who's the lead here was already someone that people were talking about uh some of the filmmakers you mentioned mike you're more aware of them than i am but those french and italian filmmakers often would find like their muse their heroine and use the Mm -hmm. same act actress again and again and again so Coppola really wanted to write a woman-centric story for that reason. Um, you, again, you could probably speak to this more than me, but there's so many European films that at the time that are more women-centric than what we were getting in America, and that's kind of what he wanted to show here. That tracks. I mean, from what I can't really, you know, I, I was just going through my collection, actually, but, like, I come across all of those French movies, and, like, what's funny about them is, like, on the cover, there's, like, usually a girl with two guys, or, like, a girl <laughs> and a guy, or, like, and the, and the girl always has, like, a short brunette bob haircut or something like that. <laughs> so, like, yeah, that, I mean, I know, I know also, like, uh, Fellini... Yeah, put his wife in a lot of his movies, and she's a terrific actress. Uh, so, like, yeah, I mean, that's that's a very common, popular trend. I feel, you know, it's like artists painting with a certain palette, if you will. Like, that's how I always kind of imagined it. And so, uh, it's too bad he didn't kind of make a series of films with her in the way he did with James Caan and Robert Duvall. You know, <laughs> well, it didn't it didn't go as well. I'll get into it in a second. But a movie that I was reminded of while watching this was a kind of a more modern film, and it's another road trip film. I covered actually in High School Slumber Party, believe it or not. But that's E Tu Mama Tambien, two thousand one. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me of that as well. And when you say, like, two guys and a girl, that's kind of that film, too, right? Like, you have yeah, like, like yeah. a heroine and two two dudes, and they go on a road trip. And that's not necessarily what we see here, but I think that's something that a lot of artistic filmmakers copy, imitate, like to work on. I don't know what the proper word for that is. Unfortunately for Coppola here... Him and Shirley Knight did not get along. They had a real Ooh. rough go of it. Because, again, she was someone who was building a name at the time. And she's a legend. IMDb her. She's done so much stuff. Even recently, she just passed away recently, I think in the last couple of years. She was in, a honestly, a super underrated Paul Rudd movie, Our Idiot Brother. I think it's one of the best comedies oh. of the last 20 years. She plays the mom in that. that. Yeah, she's in a hmm. ton of stuff, honestly, even even now. Sorry, you know, before she passed, of course. Um, she had a legendary career, but she had made stuff already. So my guess, and I'm just implying here, I, I think that the rough-and-tumble gorilla style probably didn't match 
what she was used to or expecting. And, uh. and I don't blame her for that either. Like, it's not easy to just be on the road with guys in their 20s and just shoot this as a woman, I'm sure. You know what I mean? So whatever it was, I think she does an excellent job. So it's nothing against her. They just didn't get along. That happens, you know. Sometimes, it sometimes happens. you you're so yeah, it happens. Sometimes you're just like so anxious or want to work with someone, or or sometimes you're just like expecting one thing and it turns out to be something completely different. You know, it's like she was. I'm not, you know, I don't know about the situation, but I could imagine as an actor of that generation being like, you know, okay, let's shoot this movie. It's all going to be under control, and there's going to be a bunch of people and execs and lighting and rigs and all this. And it's like, no, we're going to go like grab a van. Like, here's my friend George. He's going to, like, he's doing the sound. My other guy's going to roll. It's like, well, where's all the equipment? Where's this? And it's like, oh, we're just going to use where's all the lighting. Where's my trailer? You know? <laughs> yeah, where's the makeup? Oh, you're going to do your own makeup. Okay. Uh, Marsha, George's wife, might come along at some point. Maybe you could use some of her clothes. Like, you know, <laughs> she's doing wardrobe. <laughs> That's the it way couldn't... it feels, right? It has that spirit of, like, a student film. I love it. Yeah, I love it, too. It couldn't have been easy for her, but... It wasn't an easy journey either, like in the film. So, you know, kind of mirrors right. That. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. It reflects. I mean, you could see. Yeah, throughout the movie, the character is definitely <laughs> wearing it on screen. If you catch my meaning, you know, like uh, she's going through a lot, and it's conveyed. So, you know, whatever. Maybe Francis was trying to get that performance out of her, right? And just didn't have the sensitivity as a director at the time, or the know-how necessarily wasn't. You know, didn't have all the skill he thought he did to work properly with actresses and actors at the time, you know, and it's like, again, a little bit ironic that he's trying to put together such a feminist film. And yet, you know, it's still written and directed by a man and he sort of didn't get along with the lead woman. And like, you know, maybe she was trying to offer more insight and he wasn't having it. I mean, I don't know. It's all speculation on my end, but it's just fascinating that that it's coming up at all, you know, that there's there's something to talk about you know, regarding all this. So for sure. I'm not saying Francis Ford Coppola feminist hero here, you know what I mean? But at least <laughs> could he... you imagine? I mean, if you did say that, could you, could you <laughs> say that one more time? No, 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 I don't want someone to isolate the clip, but yeah, I mean, it is great that he is like at least starting the dialogue here, but you might be right. She might be like, no, I want to say this. I want to do this. And he'd be like, no, this is my vision. Yeah. Because, cause like on, like the one end, you know, I feel like he's doing much better than a lot of guys. Okay. Like there's no doubt, like no other guy I don't, that I can understand in America is writing or directing a movie like this at this time. So like, it doesn't feel self centered in that way at all, but it also feels very much like, like what a guy thinks a woman is going through as opposed to what like a woman might actually be going through. And to also have her, her sort of, bookended or or I don't know how else to put it, but like sort of sandwiched between two other guys, uh, two sort of very similar like looking and acting and very strong and sort of unpredictable and wild and type of men. Like it's just, you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't feel maybe um, he had it entirely thought out yet or something. And there was some room for improvement on it. Um, but regardless, I do give him tons of credit. For the attempt. I 100% agree with that, Mike. So uh, one of those guys happens to be James Caan, who of course will get on The Godfather, and he'll, be, he'll become a star after this. Also plays a football player in, in arguably his breakout role, 
uh, Brian song, which is maybe oh, yeah. top five TV movies of all time. Well, what about uh, top five Brian's in film? Brian's song, my song, yeah. Fast and Furious, and uh, we'll have to think of three more. You know, but it's my own name. I should, I should know. <laughs> Brian, not a popular character uh, name in films, but yeah, two. Brian Piccolo, Brian O'Connor, slash Spillner. Um, <laughs> but James Caan, interesting role here. We'll talk about it when we talk more about scenes. What I really want to talk about is his roommate, Robert Duvall, who plays Gordon. And not necessarily his role or what mm-hmm. he does here, but when I say his roommate, he was literally his roommate at the time. There were two young actors who lived together. I found this yeah. story... So, uh, <laughs> sorry, Mike, it seemed like it blew your mind a little bit. I, I no no it did but because I heard that that Robert Duvall roomed with Dustin Hoffman and um, what's his name Lex Luthor Gene Hackman Gene Hackman no no, no. Gene all Hackman the, yeah all yeah these guys were living together like they all knew each that's other that's insane the New York scene at the time I don't know again I don't know what what lease expired and what lease didn't expire what times right but the New York scene at the time like the seventies. All the superstars of the 70s were pretty much plucked out of, like, these play guys, these, like, theater actors of the 60s who were in their young 20s of the 60s off-Broadway who became these superstars of Hollywood. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss comes from there, too. Like, like so many... Yeah, De Niro is around. Pacino, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. De De Niro's doing his thing around that time in New York City. Even Even Shirley Knight a member of the actor's studio. She's from this school as well. So it's not like she was like Miss Hollywood or whatever. She'd been doing films. She'd been a name that studios were talking about. But most of the actors here are from that like New York play background. So uh, Con and Duvall are roommates. And I bring it up only because originally Rip Torn was cast in this role. Yeah, Rip Torn's in You're a Big Boy Now. So that makes sense. Yeah, and he's bring, he's getting a name for himself in Hollywood as well. So Rip Torn, he, he's written in this role. The role is for him. He says to Coppola, and I, I'm not like patting myself on the back, tooting my own horn. I had to find an old article from the time this movie came out to find this story. Coppola, as he tells it, said, I can't pay you. And Rip Torn says, this is what I want. I don't want money. I want a Harley Davidson motorcycle. <laughs> so they say, okay. And Coppola tracks down and finds and buys him a Harley Davidson motorcycle and delivers it to him in New York. Apparently, they go out drinking. They walk out of the bar. They walk out of wherever they are. The motorcycle has been stolen. And he, and Torn goes, I'm not doing your movie without a motorcycle. And Coppola at this point oh. is like, I can't afford to buy you another motorcycle. So they have to scrap it. So James Caan is like, listen. My roommate, he's around the same age as me. I'm, I'm kind of adding some quotes here, you know. He looks a little bit older. Let him do it. Why don't you meet him? His name is Bobby Duvall, and we'll do this. The rest is history. Yep. How many movies nice. does he do for Zootrope and just like Coppola himself? He's in THX, as you mentioned, but for Coppola, he's in The Godfather. He's in The Conversation. He's in Part 2. It's, he's in Apocalypse Now. It's... It's so crazy. Not only he he is THX one one three eight. That's that's him. He carries that. It's just him the whole movie. Like it's wild, <laughs> amazing. And if if some 
you know, low life did not, or maybe it was someone else. I don't know. I, I don't know who stole the motorcycle, but if some thug did not steal this motorcycle, film history might be different as we know. Yeah. Today. You know, man, it kind of stinks that he was never in a Star Wars while Lucas was in control. Like, that would have been a kick ass kind of presence, you know, something like that, man. That would have been awesome. He could have been like Han Solo's dad or some shit. <laughs> And you know what's funny? You mentioned Easy Rider. This film gets compared to Easy Rider a lot. Like, this is not... Look, this is not as popular as Easy Rider. Of course not. Easy Rider is yeah, yeah. a breakout film. Same year, you know, directed by Dennis Hopper, of course. By the way, we lost Dennis Hopper recently. We lost James Caan recently. It's amazing. Like, some of these stars are going away. But Dennis Hopper actually wrote a role in Easy Rider for Rip Torn. And that, I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but um, he's... Did that go to Jack Nicholson? (laughs) Yeah, it's that that character that eventually goes to Jack Nicholson. Um, He was like, listen, I want you to play a Texas hick, and he's going to be the dumbest, hickest motherfucker you ever met. And Rip Torn is like, I'm from Texas. Are you kidding me? And he storms out. So Rip Torn (laughs) didn't do this film. And didn't do Easy Rider in the same year because he was just, you know, he got angry at things. So I think that's hilarious. Well, it's wild because when you it's wild because when you watch Easy Rider and the Jack Nicholson role, knowing that, like, I I could see Rip Torn turning in almost the exact same performance if he had just gone with the joke. And it's not even a joke. Like the Jack Nicholson character, he comes across looking good compared to the rest the rest of the Texans in that movie. So. I don't know. Yeah, but that's pride for you, man. Hey, Rip Torn had a good career and kind of a notorious life later in life. So He's in one of my all-time favorite movies, Defending Your Life. He plays Albert Brooks's afterlife attorney, quote-unquote. So Albert Einstein? Albert Einstein, yeah. Bob Einstein, Super Dave's brother. It's so crazy that that's his real name. <laughs> I, I know. I think I think that's why he changed it, right? <laughs> that's definitely why he changed it. He's like, hi, I'm the actor Albert Einstein. I'm the comedian Albert Einstein. Like, that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> um, so the only other guy I recognized in the cast was uh, Tom Aldridge. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy, but this dude, he acted... Uh, we lost him in 2011. He acted until then. Um, he's one of the originals from Into the Woods, that play, which is, you know, a lot of people are talking about these oh, days. Oh, wow. It's an excellent revival. He plays Mr. Mr. Alfred, the guy um, at that, like, zoo or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Dude, this guy was in The Sopranos. Um, yeah, who is this, Carmela's dad or something? Was he? Was he Carmela's dad? I, I Yeah, I yeah, you're right, surprised. yeah. I think, <laughs> I think you're, uh, I forgot who he was in The Sopranos. When I looked up his picture, I'm like, oh, I remember that guy, right? This dude was in a lot of Boardwalk Empire. He did a lot of HBO things later. So look him up. Um, famous actor. Lived a long, good, successful life. I felt like we spent a lot of time today talking about the behind the scenes. That kind of interesting stuff. But because this is not the movie that we're going to go scene by scene with, right? Like, let's, right, right. Let's, let's just talk about moments here that we haven't talked about yet. And just like the feelings that we experienced in this one. Um, yeah. So yeah, what, yeah. what were your thoughts here? Anything that really stood out to you in terms of uh, the actual film? Uh, sure, I got a, I got a couple notes actually. Uh, I thought it was great how Coppola was able to. I mean, this 
uh, Coppola was able to very much foreshadow The Godfather. I mean, it was on his brain or something was, but we get an authentic Italian wedding in this that is very much like Connie's, but very downscaled, but it's very much like that Italian-American family wedding for a moment, you know, when, when she's having her little, like, flashbacks. Yeah, so the use of flashback is interesting here. I don't know if he needed all of them, but some of them are very powerful and also really highlights like unreliable narrator thing, which I love in films, right? Uh, You know, we'll get to like Duvall's character later, but early on, the crux of this film is it's a woman who's married to this guy. What's his name? Like Vinny or something? Like, I'm not trying to be like that, but like, it's like Vinny from Mm -hmm. Long Island and she's pregnant and she's like, how did I get here? Sort of talking heads esque, right? What's that song? Uh, a once in a lifetime. Then, yeah. Then the days How go did by. I get here? Yeah, it's literally that, right? Like, holy shit! You know, I met, I fell in love with someone. It was passionate, and then one day I woke up, and my life became his life. Well, well, she found out she was pregnant. Is what happened, and then that's when she realized. Yeah, where I'm am trapped. I? Where am yeah. I? You know, like, everything I thought about myself is gone, and all I do is serve this man. We don't ever see him, which I think is a great choice. We kind of just yes. see her on the road and on her journey, and she's just like, fuck this. Like, this, like she, she <laughs> almost wakes up at this point. And I think, look, I'm not saying everyone goes through this, but a lot of people go through this. And some people say, you know, like, this is my life. And some people say, how am I here? Why am I here? And she has that moment. And again, even though her husband is an unseen character, I love this character because as he calls, first he's like, you know, what's going on? I'm concerned. Then he gets angry at some points. Eventually he's like, I'll do anything if you come back, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's going through like the five stages of grief or whatever they're called, right? Like that's that's his arc in the movie over the phone is how it feels and yeah i love that too like just we never see him we only hear him as sort of shades of the conversation you know how coppola is going to play with voice i guess i don't know really know how this is speech like just we're just going to be eavesdropping uh that's kind of interesting later we get we definitely with the cop we get some early x-wing sounds from George Lucas's <laughs> library because you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you can definitely listen for that. But one thing I really thought was kind of struck me as funny this time around is, you know, in the opening, she goes to her mother's, right? And you, I always heard growing up and it was always sort of a trope on sitcoms and TV shows that like when a marriage is having trouble, like the wife will go to her mom's house, you know, like I'm going to my mother's and like slammed a door. Uh, so like, I wonder if this was at the beginning of that happening because divorce was somewhat on the rise and like, you know, this started to become kind of more commonplace and like, this isn't like, something that happens all the time yet i guess is what i'm saying so like we're at the beginning of the i'm going to my mom's i'm leaving you kind of thing you know where i'm getting at yeah and i I thought it was so fascinating and so realistic that she goes to her mom's and her parents aren't necessarily supportive you know what i mean they're not like 
Right, like, right. Oh, we'll house you in this. Like, what the hell are you doing? You know, like, and that feels especially. Yeah, her dad. Her dad does your. Does he know you're here? Like, where's he? Like, where? You know, that happens throughout the whole movie. Where like, whether she's trying to get a hotel room and the people are like, "Is it just you? Where's your husband?" Or like, she's getting pulled over and it's like, you know, are you alone? Where's your husband? Or like, she's with James Con and it's like. We're just friends, and people are like, yeah, a man and a woman are just friends. Okay. Exactly. And that's what frames the James Conn role so well. Because, you know, she's just driving. She's just doing her thing. She's calling her husband. She picks up a hitchhiker, which is unfathomable today, right? Uh, I mean, like, I feel like that phrase has been phased out of society at this point. (laughs) (laughs) No, for sure. She picks up this hitchhiker. And at first, he's sort of just like sexual meat. You know what I mean? Good looking guy, mm-hmm. football player, younger than her. Stud. Stud. Yeah. And she's looking to have an affair, which she admits later. She's looking for like a night of passion. But we slowly learn about him. And essentially, you know, he was a star at his college. And we see these flashbacks. And he has a big game and he has an injury. And he's clearly hit a lot. And, again, it's so poetic and it's so modern and stuff that happens today. They essentially tell him to take a hike when he can't play football anymore. They give him $1,000, which is a lot more at the time. It's like giving someone, like, mm-hmm. five or $10,000, which you can't live on, but it's almost like, thank you. And let's even put it this way. Let's even say it's more because college costs more. Essentially, they pay him off the rest of his scholarship money to get the fuck out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give your, here's your tuition back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do your thing and get off campus because they consider him not just like useless, but yeah, useless. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, you know, he goes from being star star quarterback to the groundskeeper. Like all he can literally do is, you know, rake leaves or mow the yard or whatever. And there's that one scene that's very troubling to watch where, he, you know, he's, he goes to his, ex-girlfriend who you know it has no sympathy for him and just lays it right out whereas like he doesn't even know what we're talking about right now like he has a he he got hit he went to the hospital they put a metal plate in his head and now he's like this and she even drops a hard r on them you know and i'm not gonna it, say that it's word. not a hard r at the time to be fair but yeah i know i know I know, but it still felt like an insult the way she lashed it out and that's exactly what i was gonna say mike Coppola is so good at this that we need to view it in the lens of that point where that's not a hard R, but it feels like a hard R from today, the way she's saying it. Yeah, yeah, because I think that's how Coppola feels about that word. You know, like he's not going to say that throughout the whole movie. No. You know, they say they say dumb and stuff like that. He's not all there. He's, you know, I think slow at one point, but she's the only one that says that, I think. And he, he's so good as a filmmaker that the first couple scenes you see him, the first moments of time when she takes him to the hotel, you're not thinking that. You just kind of think he's sort of like a himbo. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. But then they make it clear, like, no, this guy has injuries. This guy's suffering. They say he put a plate in his head that, like, he's just not the same. And eventually they have that scene in the motel and she basically can't sleep with him. She just feels something's not right. And, yeah, something's not right. Yeah, yeah. That's a wild scene. Shades of S&M. It's like sub and dom 
role mm-hmm. play going on, you know, first when she when he's holding her and then when it's like Simon says and then when she is like, you know, tells him to like get on his knees and all that kind of, and then it becomes very uncomfortable very quickly for everybody. Very fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's so fascinating. And again, the fact that like something inside her says this isn't right. And then, like, we learn that. It's just, like, instinct. But, like, the tragedy of the movie, to me, is she doesn't want to be a mother. She doesn't want to be a wife. And, again, a wife in the 60s, not not necessarily a wife today. A wife today should be more like a partner. Back then, it's like, no, you serve the man, right? And then she's saddled with this person that she has to take care of. So even though she's escaping all that, Fate has made her be a mother. Fate has made her be a wife in a circumstance that she yep. didn't ask for. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, like that, again, like I said that I said it a lot tonight, but like in pertaining to this film, like that's sort of the poetic justice, I guess. You know, the irony, the, the poetic justice of the of like what Coppola is going for, I think, is like you can't run away from your problems. You're just going to have a bigger problem on your hands. OK, like. There comes to a point in the movie where the husband says, whatever you want to do, we'll deal with the baby, you know, whatever you want. Okay. So like she has a choice there to go back and have it her way, however she wants. And I'm not saying she should or needs to, but she decides to keep going instead of dealing and facing her problem head on and talking to her husband about like, I, you know, face to face instead of phone calls further and further apart. Like she has a right, but I don't know that she's necessarily always in the right in how she's handling the situation. And the movie sort of tells her that because she doesn't want the baby. She doesn't want the husband and she ends up with a baby husband, you know, is essentially what she gets. And she spends the rest of the movie trying to ditch him. And it's heartbreaking, you know, like it's just very, it becomes very hard to watch. But she can't ditch him morally. Something inside her keeps coming back to him and she finds him. And and maybe it's, again, fate that like they keep running into each other and she goes back and keeps trying to help him, right? Like it's that. Yeah, get him a job or place to live or something. Well, really, if she wanted to escape that, she just left him at the next town and let him deal with himself right oh man that's yeah that's where this movie gets yeah stuck. well that's also another thing dude like just don't pick up hitchhikers like yes that's the lesson even yeah. <laughs> um like face like talk about your problems like don't just run away from them you know and it's it might be hard at the time but it's easier in the long run and then don't pick up hitchhikers <laughs> <laughs> god her journey in here is so heartbreaking because she honestly she is a good person She's trying to be rebellious. She's almost trying to be a bad person. And she can't. Like, even even when yeah. she tries that, she can't do it. And it's like, oh my god. That's something interesting that isn't very fleshed out either, is how she, like, is this really what she wants? Like, I don't think she ever really, like, it would be nice if there was just a moment where she doubts herself. I mean, she does kind of say in the phone calls, like, I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, I just have to find out and things like this and everything. But, like, the part of me wonders, like, I wish the movie was a little more like, this isn't exactly what she wants. Uh, I mean, I mean, we come to learn that. I mean, obviously, she doesn't want to be saddled with James Caan and run into a guy like Robert Duvall and stuff. I don't mean that. But, like, 
I don't, I don't necessarily believe she wants to run. I think she wants to talk about it and fit and she's trying, but just people, even today, like we just don't have the skills to do that, you know? And it's very frightening. Confrontation is very frightening, especially with like a partner, you know, a life partner. So there's a lot to consider there. And, you know, it's, it's tough. I feel that in the movie, you know, I feel like she just, you know, like many people, we just don't have the skills to deal with these kinds of things all the time. Mike, you make a really good point because like if she was truly just unabashedly running away, why is she calling this guy? You know, why is she calling yeah, her husband? Yeah. Like she should just call him once and say, I'm fine. I'm leaving you. And that's that. But you're right. Like we don't have the skills as human beings. And that's what this movie is about. And it's also about like fate and instinct. And again, freedom, but can we really be free? Oh, it's so dark. I love it. Um, any anything else you want to talk about? We already talked about oh, the parade. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about before we get to the cop? No, I mean, well, we just we go to that guy on the farm. Yeah, um, which is a very troubling sequence where she's trying to get the guy. She's trying to get Killigan, Kilgannon. Sorry, she's trying to get Killer a job, and the guy's like immediately realizes he can take advantage of him. Um, and you know, we just see like his horrible attitude and his scheming with the money. You could put the money in my safe and later on, like what's safe and all this and that this sequence like is in a lot of other movies. I feel like it's from like old timey movies too, a lot like just grifters and things like that. But Coppola plays this beat for beat perfectly. You know, it's, uh, it's got all the ups and downs that you would expect and want from this sequence. So, yeah, the sequence again, it's just, it's. It is bizarre in a sense where you see these animals and if you read the caption, it's like coyote, half coyote, you know, it also like goes to her like she's just trying to get him a job. But there's part of her. It's like just sell him anywhere. It doesn't matter. Right. As long as he gets a job. But the good person in her is like questioning this. The guy's like, oh, let me let me put that money in the safe and I'll take it to the bank. Yeah. We all know while watching it's like, that's not going to happen here. This guy's trying to steal the money. She knows it too, but she wants to believe that he's going to be okay. And she knows he's not. She just knows deep down inside. Yeah. He's not. Yeah. That's, it's, it's a heavy scene where she realizes like, this isn't a safe place, but like, she she can't do anymore. And she just kind of runs for it at one point. And then when she comes back for him, James Conn's let like all the animals loose. Like, we should say it's sort of more than a farm. It's like a petting zoo as well, but they also sell like chicks and, and eggs and oddities and it's stuff. It's like a, so, like, a, he's a crappy charge. roadside attraction. Yeah. And, and he would be in charge of like hosing down the animals that are just caged up all day. And when we come back to it, like he's just let them all free, uh, you know, because he just can't like him. He, they cannot be caged anymore or whatever. So but again, like there's heavy handed themes in this film. And one of them is freedom. Right. So yeah, it totally certainly. makes sense that James Conn's character would let them all free. Let's get to the Duvall character, which is a cop that pulls her over and things kind of get weird. He's looking for sex. Yeah, yeah, he's looking he's looking for a wife, I think, to to control his daughter. Um <laughs> which that to me is one of the most fascinating parts of the, the end of this movie is just so wild. Like it almost becomes like surreal or something. So she gets pulled over by by Robert Duvall and it's the whole thing like where's your husband? Oh, and she sees like no husband, woman on her own, this whole thing and like 
they end up like going to get a drink together and then they end up like making plans to hang out that night and then like she goes back to his trailer by the way, for sex. By the way, <laughs> not to not to cut you off, but I think this is where the film could have gotten a little bit more economical. Like they didn't need like, oh let's make plans, let's like make a date. Like you could have jumped to let's go back to my trailer, you know? Right, right, right. Maybe he wanted to make us feel more uncomfortable, but I don't know. Like, I think they could have just gone back to the trailer because the setup is fucked up, but it's nice, right? Like, you know, you're thinking just about lust here because, like, it's part of her goal here. She just wants to break free from her husband and and kind of ha- even, at the minimum, have a one-night stand, like, some of her, you know, last moments of freedom. And she's here, and she gets in that trailer, and he has a daughter. And he reveals that his wife died, but the story he's telling is like, we never got along anyway. Oh, she got yeah, pregnant, yeah. and I'm kind of saddled with this girl. Get at it. By the way, I love the daughter. The fact that she's like, can I watch? Yep. You know what I mean? Well, so, like, reflections of the, the Shirley Knight character, I'm thinking. Like, we're supposed to look at the two of them as, like, the daughter is already a woman, Right? She's like, where's my bra's ear? You know? I'm up at night. Like, I can take care of myself, Dad. Like, I need to learn about sex. Let me watch. And then we have, uh, is it Nat? It's Natalie, right? So then we have Natalie, like, you know, running away from the whole womanhood thing, or or at least the, the grown-up thing, I'll say. Yeah. Like, she's running away from being a grown-up in responsibility. And we have this little daughter here who's like, already responsible for herself practically her her dad's a cop but he's never home you know that by the looks of it she's totally self-dependent and wild and it's just so interesting to to see at the end of this movie here how like in my mind if i'm watching this as an art film like she's being confronted with her inner child at this moment of some kind right yeah yeah and that's exactly it right like natalie is trying to gain freedom and experience I guess more of that freedom she experienced in her youth, as we all do, right? And this character, the daughter, is is the the other way, right? She's been forced into adulthood because she doesn't have a mother. Her father's a cop. They live in this trailer. There it is. And it's like, whoa, like these worlds have merged here. And it makes things super uncomfortable for everyone involved, right? Because if you think about the false (laughs) character, that's uncomfortable. It's sort of uncomfortable for the daughter. It's definitely uncomfortable for Natalie. Like, what the hell? I don't necessarily like the ending. And I don't necessarily like how long it lingers. I love the fact that she's got James Conn's character back. And the child, the supposedly innocent child, is walking around with someone who's almost been turned innocent in the James Conn character. Like, he's had these yeah. head injuries that he's become more innocent than he should be obviously at that age uh just going back to the girl he dated in in, uh college right like she definitely liked him because he was the football star when he wasn't the football star he's useless now to society and it's so heartbreaking and he's just essentially innocence walking around he's a good guy and you have this child who should be innocent Walking around, gossiping about the trailer park, see, saying what she sees at night, which is like, oh, I saw that couple make it. I saw th- this couple. They're supposed to be married, 
but they go to different trailers at night. You know what I mean? It's like the, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. culture that's there. And it's it's like, a, again, I'm not saying it's right, but in that moment, James Conn is the child and she's the adult. Yeah, yeah. That's what makes it so uncomfortable on purpose. While this very uncomfortable Crazy. sex scene is, or, or almost sex scene is happening in the trailer, when Natalie realizes basically she can't do this as well, and Duvall's character is essentially trying to rape her, it's so dark, and it's so yeah, oh yeah. my god. But when we get that flashback spliced in, when he's talking about his wife, oh I didn't love her, whatever, but we see the reality that she died in a fire, and he's running in to try to save her. Yep. Oh my yep. god. And, and the fact is, you're right, Mike. He's actually not looking for just a lay. He's looking for a partner. He's looking for the one. He's looking, and it's just like, yeah. oh my god, it gets so heavy here. It does, like you know, she never really, and like most of most of us, like you know, I'm guilty of this. Like you know, we only consider ourselves in a lot of situations where we really should be thinking, like, I don't know their backstory. Like, I should really get to know this person before I maybe jump into bed with them or go back to their house and find out, like their very complicated life that they have back there you know like i don't you know like she doesn't know his wants and needs when they meet. she just sees a police officer and in society especially this one at the time it's like well he's protection he's got a job like he's got stability all this stuff like all the things that you know you're told that like you know i'm I'm imagine that women are drilled into their heads around this time like that's what you're looking for in a man you know stability protection like you know, someone who could scare other people off, like they won't look at you uh, a second way, uh, won't look at you twice or the dirty look or anything like that. And then you go back to his reality and it's like, no, he's the one who needs help. Like he's looking for help. He's looking for stability and security with a, with like an extra partner. You know, he's got this, this daughter at home that he can't control that basically controls him. You know, by the end of it, she has it her way. And, uh, it's just wild. Like, there's so many readings that you could do to this movie by the end of it, and it's hard to sort of be wrong when you're arguing your point, you know. And that's what's so great about it in the end. And the end is so dark because it ends up being uh, Natalie's character is escaping this rape. James Collins' character, who again love loves her, but like in a way that like she's protected him throughout the film that he breaks in to try to save her. The daughter ends up shooting James Conn to save her father. And we kind of see where loyalties lie here. That character dies, and we end with just Natalie, like, weeping over his body, like, oh my goodness, like a mother. Yeah. Reminded me, literally, and would it surprise me if Coppola was doing this, reminded me of the Virgin Mary with Jesus, right? Like... James mm, yeah. Conn representing the innocence there and, and she representing yeah, the Virgin Mary like oh my goodness and she's not a virgin obviously she has a husband she's pregnant but she's almost representing that because twice in this film she could have got what she wanted which was just to get laid and she didn't and I couldn't not help but see the biblical implication here and the fact that he ends it at mm-hmm. that like that to me was like boom holy shit you know what i'm saying oh definitely yeah 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 i mean it's almost even in the same pose as like the painting right where she's cradling jesus and like it's very 
deep and heartfelt at the end here. And I think it's the right place to end it, but I think you're right. It could have ended like just a little sooner. I like the whole sort of point that it's like they struck up this friendship, right? Like the whole the whole time I'm thinking like the movie is just trying to prove like when Harry met Sally, like a man and a woman can be platonic huh. friends. You know, I say that jokingly, but to a degree, like this movie is about friendship, about like two people who don't know each other, who end up just like caring for each other, just as friends. Like she can't, like first she, you know, she can't see him not being taken care of. Like she's trying to set him up with a job at first. And then at the end of the movie, when it's too late, she's holding him saying like, I'll take you home. I'll take you home. You'll stay with me and all this stuff. And, you know, all the stuff that maybe she wish she realized a little sooner or so. But, you know, that's the hardest thing, too, is to approach something like from a friendship point of view as well. And like, I can only imagine how tough it was uh, for these two characters. You know, it's so weird because like she doesn't really, you know, she's presented as someone who doesn't quite know exactly what she wants, but she's out there searching for it. And then you have the James Conn character who quite literally can't know what he wants. So (laughs) the two of them that run into each other is just like not a good combination you know and it's too bad that they couldn't take care of each other in the end again we said this at the top we'll say it now this is not a movie that you want to watch with your family to have a nice fun time (laughs) watch pirates of the caribbean you know what i mean that's not this dark ending it's weird because it could have been shorter i i think like looking today i can imagine what i would have caught i'm sure there's things that you would have cut. We're not editors. We're not Coppola. I get it. Like, it's not our medium. He, this is a story he wanted to tell. I don't think... I think it could have been 90 minutes long and told the same things. However, to end there and not to know what Natalie's fate is, is a choice, right? Like, does she just go back mm-hmm. to her husband? Does she continue on the road? We don't know. I love it. Open-ended, yeah. It's bothering me today. And I don't mean bothering me because it's bad. I mean, it's bothering me because that's life. You know what I mean? This is a movie that's, that's, that's closer to life than what we get most of the time these days, right? So yeah, the rain people, right? Like, it's not the Godfather. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Ah, oh, wow. Anything else you want to mention about the film? Yeah, just that, uh, you know... I hope I didn't come down too hard on it earlier in the episode by saying it's a bad movie. I don't think it's a bad movie at all. I think it's a it's an ex it's quite an excellent movie. I just I just think it's a heavy movie. It's very heavy. It can be seen sometimes as you know depressing. Like these are all just sort of like warnings if you're going to watch the movie. You know, it's like it's not per se like a fun time. It's kind of a tough watch, but like it's a rewarding watch. It is an art film. It's something that can be studied and dissected and talked about. It can also very much just be enjoyed as a movie, you know, a serious melodrama, but a movie nonetheless, you know, and and it has a wonderful film language. And, you know, I applaud it uh, very much for its themes, which are extremely complex, complicated and ahead of, you know, still, still very relevant today. And so this is sort of um, Coppola seeing into the future a little bit, uh, as it were, or at least being a man ahead of his time when it came to having the balls to open his mouth and talk about things that make people uncomfortable. 
All right, uh, put it that way. Like, like, he wants to make movies. No, no, but like, like wants to make movies to get people to start talking about stuff, right? Not just to be like, wasn't that a great movie when the guy jumped off the bridge? It's like, no, like, hey, we saw a movie the other day and it was about this woman who didn't want to keep the baby, so she went away, and it, it opens up a whole can of worms, you know? Art. So, that's what art does, yeah. though, and that's what this is art. Right? There you go. This is art. And I, I, again, I say it like this because, Mike, you do Third Time's a Charm. I mean, you do a bunch of Keanu films. You do a bunch of Cage films. You do a lot of podcasts here. I do High School Slumber Party. I've done a bunch of other stuff here, too. I would say most of the films we cover are not art films, right? Like, we do cover some. Right, right. There's some Cage art films. There's some Keanu art films. There's some high school yeah. art films that I cover in High School Slumber Party. But with Coppola, what's so fascinating and interesting about what we're doing here on this project that even the blockbusters feel like art with Coppola. And I think that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You know, like, um, I, I guess you could consider apocalypse now like a blockbuster. I mean, it is operatic. It is. Uh, it's definitely but, a blockbuster. Yeah, even- it's definitely like made to be a hit and no, no, sorry. I should correct myself. It's not made to be a hit, but the studio positioned it that way. Right. So it's like, Apocalypse Now, I can't wait to get to it. I can't wait to all the versions oh, of it. I love it. Oh my god, when we start talking about like that that uh French uh you know French colonial scene. Oh love it, love <laughs> in, it, in love it. But the point is like the fact that this guy keeps just trying to put his vision out there for better or worse is the reason why I drink my Coppola wine and we do this podcast together, <laughs> right? Because like I'm never disappointed. Even the bad films, I'm not going to be disappointed. We'll see what happens with Jack. We'll see what happens with Jack. I don't mean disappointed like I'm going to like every movie. But like he's a guy who clearly puts his intention out there in every film he makes that I've seen. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I love that. So anything else you want to mention in the rain, people? I think I think we've like really captured the essence of this. And I hope... Again, if you're a Coppola mm-hmm. fan, you watch The Rain People and you let us know what you think because it is it is a heavy film for the era. It is something you talk about. It, again, it's not one of its hits, but it's so important in this catalog. Yeah, I don't I don't really have much else to say about this except I think we're one of the few people I've talked this much about this movie. So like there's that. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Like I wonder, you know, whoever's listening you know, I hope you watch the movie before you listen to the podcast. But if you don't, I hope you're intrigued enough to watch it and then spread the word and be like, you know, Coppola's early, early film. Check him out. I want to get to early, early at some point. I want to get to the Corman stuff that he's like redoing. I want to get to Coppola essentially the work. Oh, yeah. When, when Corman is handing him things and it's like, yeah, see this movie I just bought from this country? Make it an American film. Here you go. You know, like, we're we're going to get to movies like that. We're going to get to, obviously, masterpieces like The Godfather 2 and the aforementioned Apocalypse Now. But you can't talk Coppola, I think, without talking to the rain people. So I'm glad, Mike, you and I could talk about this film today. And I'm glad I can drink this Chardonnay, believe it or not. Not my favorite. I'm not a Chardonnay guy. But it's here. I got to buy new All stock. Right. All right. I got to buy new stock because I, I need some more Coppola wines. So. Uh-oh. By the way, Coppola Wine, if you're out there, send us free wine. We want you to sponsor us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian, I forgot to ask you something, though. Where can you stream The Godfather? Still still on Peacock. It's still on Peacock. 
Okay, okay, okay. Just making sure. I guess we're only going to broach that when it makes a massive change. Yes, exactly, exactly. When the Godfather changes, I will let you guys know. You'll, we, we'll you'll let me know. Okay. So, yeah. Still on Peacock, the Godfather. Uh, but, Mike, this was an absolute pleasure. It feels weird because, like, on High School Slumber Party, we have questions. So we sort of answer our questions on Uncle Francis' wine cellar at the beginning, right? So, Right. Um, you know, let me look into that Lucas thing. Maybe we'll do that even next. That's like a sort of mid-month thing. But hope you guys enjoyed yeah. Halloween. Hope you guys enjoyed our Dracula two-parter. That was really fun. That was awesome. Yeah. I had a blast with that. You know, technically, I guess you could say it's sort of a uh, Monsters That Made Us sort of special edition of the Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. <laughs> it really was. Like editing back i'm like this sounds like a monsters that made us you know <laughs> so uh again thanks again for that we thank dan cologne for that so mike i think we're gonna stick with the cannoli line because i don't know i want that cannoli sponsorship so yeah 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 first of all seller drillers out there again follow us on social media tell people about this show but if you can't mike leave the gun take the cannoli <laughs> this is the end Beautiful friend This is the end My only friend The end Of our elaborate plans The end Of everything that stands The end No safety